0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. So about eight years ago, when we lived in Florida, I had I'd really gotten to a place in my life to where I kind of relaxed, uh, I kind of settled down, and I became a little bit less active than what I had used to be. Um, and I got to a place where I just really started to get to... to really just kind of every day I woke up kind of tired. And and then I kind of, anyone ever been there? It's like you just wake up every single day and you're kind of tired. and You're just kind of like, oh man, I've got to get through a whole other day. And yet I'm just at the beginning of this day. How in the world am I going to make it till eight o'clock when I eight o'clock PM when I don't want to get up at eight o'clock AM. And I had, I was in ministry and one of the, you know, the thing about ministry is it's so demanding, and, and it requires of the person who's actually in full-time ministry, you may just think that I, I just like prepare messages and then preach on Sunday and then put my feet up every day. I, I don't do that. That would be a great uh, life and existence, but that's not the reality of a, of a pastor or a shepherd. But um, one of the things uh, for me, I just, I got to the place where I was just, I was tired every single day. And I got up in the morning, and I was tired, and I would think, man, how in the world? I was, I was physically empty. I was spiritually empty. Every part of me just kind of ached. And I knew that I needed to do something, but I didn't know what it was. So I, I got to the point where things had gotten so bad. And, and I really, now I sit back in hindsight, and I, I, I almost think that maybe some, some levels of depression were starting to set in. And I got to the point where I just said, you know what? I've got to start something. I've got to do something. So I I started doing something that I didn't really like to do at the time. Um, I decided that, you know what, I'm going to get up in the morning before I go to work and before I start helping and serving other people. I just need to go have some Jesus time and I need to really commit some time for my own personal health. So what I started to do was, I, and I'm not even a morning person, like, I'm, I'm not a morning person to the level of, I have to have two cups of coffee before you really talk to me and I can have a good conversation. I'm that, I'm that much of, of uh, not a morning person. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to get up, like, when the sun comes up, before I do anything else, I'm just going to get up, I'm just going to have some Jesus time, I'm going to go out, and I decided that I was going to start walking. And we were living in Florida, like I'd said, and I just started walking up the block, and and then I got to the point where I was like, you know what, this is really good and I was like, I wonder if I can I wonder if I can run. Now at this point, things had gotten so far out of control that, that I had, you know, I, I had left the Navy at about 165 pounds, maybe 168 pounds. I'd gone to the aviation world, gotten comfortable, bought a recliner, right? And that was, that was like the worst thing. So I got the recliner and it became very comfortable and I like wore it in just right and I wore it in a little too much and I started to put on the pounds. And then I got into ministry so busy serving other people, doing everything else that I was forgetting about me. My own personal, uh, physical, and spiritual health. So uh, at that time, I I decided, you know what? I'm going to start. I'm going to start walking. Then I, I had this inkling. I'm like, I wonder if I can run. At this point, I started out my my good fighting weight about one sixty five, one sixty eight. By this point, I was pushing one ninety. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but but as tall as I am, I was as tall as, as I was as round as I am tall. So just imagine that for a moment, and that was me. Um, and then, and now you're back. Good. So that was, that's kind of where I was. And I, that's probably etched you in your mind. It's going to take a little while to kind of erase that. But uh, maybe images of like Job of the Hut or something. I wasn't like that. I did wear clothes. So just so you know. And so I had like really let my life get out of control. But I knew that I had to start something. So I started small. I started walking. I had some confidence. I'm like, well, who can't walk? I was starting to enjoy the morning. It was so hot in Florida. I was starting to enjoy the mornings, the cool of the morning. So I would go out, and I, I thought, you know what? I, maybe I could jog. So I started walking. I'd walk a block, and then I'd jog a block. And then I would Walk a block, and then I would jog a block, and then I would walk a block, jog a block. You'd get it, and then I would do. I would walk two blocks, and then I would jog two blocks. And man, it's like things are starting to rock and roll. I'm not like a runner. I don't have a runner's physique. I don't have the history of runner of, of running. I don't have like a family lineage of, of runners. Like we're not good at that. So it wasn't necessarily that I was good at it, but I worked at it. And I knew I needed to start something. And one of the things that I started to notice was it was like I started in my physical being as I would run just a little bit more and then walk just a little bit less. And then I would run a little bit more. And I remember I got to the point where I ran my first mile, like without stopping and without walking. And I ran the whole thing and I was like, man, I can do this. I, I hadn't really, I don't know if there was any physical difference in, in my shape, but I can tell you spiritually things were really starting to open up for me. But physically, my, I was starting to feel just a little bit better. Then I started getting a little bit more adventurous. Then I pushed the boundary. Then I ran two miles. Then I ran three miles. And I got to the point where I ran four miles without someone telling me to. I did that when I was in boot camp. It's easy to, like, it's easy to be motivated when you have somebody screaming in your ear. But, like, this wasn't happening. I, and So I was just sitting there, and I would find myself doing something I was completely uncomfortable doing. I knew that I needed to start something. I didn't know where it would end up, but I, but I knew I had to start something. I had, something had to be different in my life. And I knew that, yes, there may be a little bit of pain to actually push through and a barrier to push through, but I knew that the pain of change was better or it was easier than the pain of staying the same. So as I just kept doing it and kept doing it, I was, like, I was like, man, I'm not necessarily a runner, but I was starting to have some victories. And I had this kind of like this, this little thing, this, this scripture. If you're familiar with it, Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things who Christ who strengthens me. Maybe you've heard of that. Maybe you're kind of a church a Christian, uh, you know, uh, you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe you're, you know that. Maybe you don't I don't know but for me I was just I kind of made this kind of like something I would just repeat over and over and over step by step by step And I just knew that I was just as much on a on a spiritual journey as I was on a physical journey y'all tracking so far So then as I progress and I'm, I'm getting a little bit more daring I remember that once we moved here and I I, had, I had ran and kind of stretched the distance out mind you I'm not a runner, but I'm just kind of stretching the distance out. I signed up for my first half marathon Now, I had trained very hard for this half marathon, and my my wife and my my family, if you do any sort of training for any distance running, it takes a lot of time. I know we have some runners in here. It takes a lot of time, and the family also kind of bears the brunt of, of that little adventure and that training. So I'm very thankful to Marla and my family for allowing me some space to do this. But I, I went out and trained for this half marathon. And I remember the, the day of the half marathon. I believe it was 28 degrees, right, at race time. It was 28 degrees. Now, mind you, you have to want to run yourself at 28 degrees. at all, And I know that actually the same race that I signed up for, we have some other people who have also signed up for that race, um, in, in the race in Warner Robins. So it was, it was treacherously cold. But I remember all of that training and I remember all of the time in Florida when I was just running a block and, and walking a block and running a block and then two and then a mile and then two miles and then the four mile mark and and doing all of that all of that kind of ushered into the time all up to the the day of the half marathon freezing my tail off and I'm standing up and I am and I'm doing what what the 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 race director says, and right before a race, he says, get on your marks. I remember it like it was absolutely yesterday. I remember standing on that line and the mass of people and thinking, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to finish this race, but I knew I had succeeded before I ever even got up to the line. What if God's dream for you... And what if what if you're the thing in your life that you're supposed to step out in faith to do? What if you would already maybe just in stepping out that you would already declare victory? What is it for you that that you know that needs to change in your life? And now I'm not I'm not advocating everybody needs to go out now. Hey, we're all going to be runners, and I'm going to you know somebody's going to run the the or start a running club and all that. Anybody say amen to that? Right? Like that's not what I'm saying. But for me, I had to run. But I have to tell you, for you, it may be something else. Your marriage could be in trouble right now. and Maybe the thing you need to start is you need to go talk to somebody about your marriage. Maybe the thing for you is you have a a child that's wayward and you need to just start praying about. Maybe you've never prayed. Maybe you've talked. Maybe you've fought. Maybe you've argued. Maybe you've pushed. Maybe you've pulled. I don't know what this story is, but maybe for you, you just need to start something and start developing and building upon that relationship that's distant from you. For you, maybe you're stuck in a line of work that you absolutely hate and you've got this dream and you believe it's a God dream. Something that you're supposed to run headlong into, but yet there's this thing that's separating you from what you're doing into what you're supposed to be doing, and it's fear. What if you were to step out in faith? And this I'm not just talking about just just boyhood or, or you know, just little girl dreams, just chasing dreams and running away and being irresponsible. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about something that God has put in you. Something of this on this earth in the world around us, something that you're supposed to maybe start to change other people's lives? What if God were to use you as a catalyst to help other people? Where would you start? What would that look like for you? Maybe you just need to kind of get on your mark right now. Maybe maybe right now you already know what it is that you're supposed to start. Maybe you're burdened with something and you haven't done anything with that burden. And the thing that's stopping you from, from doing what it is and chasing after that God-given dream is fear. What are people going to say? I, 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 can't, I can't invite my... Maybe for you, you just need to invite your coworker to work and you know they're hurting. You see that they're hurting, but yet you're fearful of, of ruining that relationship by just inviting them into this space. Maybe you need to be a catalyst to start something in your life, but maybe it's being a catalyst to start something else in someone else's life. What if that, that thing that is, that is stopping you from moving forward, to be a catalyst, to, to start something, maybe all of that is in your head? What if it's not even reality, but, but you're convinced, and Satan has you convinced that that is reality? What if God's dream for you is so much bigger than what your doubts are holding you to? What if you're in prison by your fear right now, and you don't even know it? And you actually live in a world with invisible bars and it's stopping you from God's best for you. I believe that every one of us, we're not all supposed to be runners and doing all of that. But maybe for you, maybe it's some of the things that I've mentioned. Maybe it's, it's something else. But I believe God has a dream for every single one of us. And I believe he has put something in us. And it's, maybe it's something that you've gone through. And God has done some, some, some heart work on you and he's turned your life around. And he He wants to take that brokenness and, and that healing that he's, he's made through that brokenness and that beautiful mosaic of his grace for you to show that to somebody else to say, hey, there's a better way. I believe God has a plan for each and every one of us. And it's greater than the person who stands on this stage. It's greater than the, the musicians who strum a guitar or a drummer who holds a set of drumsticks. I believe God has a dream for every single one of us. And it's not just within these walls. It's with, it really is, it has no boundaries and no barriers. What's God's dream for you? What is it that you're supposed to start? What is the barrier that's stopping you from God's best? This whole series, we're going to be here, this, this is 11 weeks. We're going to go so deep into this book of the Bible, and we're going to discuss three people, and these three people, feel the, they felt the same tension that you feel right now. What do I do? What if people don't like me? What if I make a mistake? These three people that we're going to look at, and the first one is the guy we'll really jump into for the next couple weeks. His name is Zerubbabel. He, he, is, he becomes the first leader of a group of people. And then there's somebody who follows him. And this leader, his, his name is Ezra. And he follows a little bit smaller group of people. But he has a very divine given gift and ability and a task before him. But he felt the same tension that you feel. And even me speaking those words over you, you feel a tension. And you have to go back to that tension and allow God to reveal to you what that tension is. Because if you break through that tension, just as you see these three gentlemen, and the last one, his name is Nehemiah. If you go through and you kind of reconcile that tension within you, I believe that on the other side of that will be something so much more powerful. And I believe that will even be maybe God's greater purpose and plan for your life. But you have to get on your mark. And you have to start something. You have to start somewhere. We're going to be in... Uh, first of all, we're going to be in the book of Second Chronicles. If you uh, have your Bible... Um, Here's a little cheat for 2 Chronicles. Those pages of your Bible probably have some dust. A lot of people don't read those because that's kind of in the history section of the Bible. But I will say this, those sections of the Bible, they have authority over our lives just as is the words in red in the Gospels. So here's a little cheat for that. If you have your Bible and you open it up right in the middle of your Bible, you're probably going to land right in the range of Psalms, Proverbs, or Ecclesiastes. If you go to the left just a little bit, You're going to go through just a few names. You're going to to hit uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, and then you're going to be in 2 Chronicles. We're going to get to Ezra, but we're going to start in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's right at the end of 2 Chronicles. This group of people that 2 Chronicles 36 talks about is really something, uh, the events of this are something that we've talked about over the last several months. During the All In series, I made reference to a gentleman by the name of Jeremiah. Maybe you remember that. And In Jeremiah, there's, there's a book of the Bible that, is, um, uh, that it was written, and it, it holds his name. The book of Jeremiah is in the Bible. And for him, he, his whole ministry was prophesying the events that we're going to talk about, the, the events that preceded what we're going to talk about today. And Jeremiah, his, his ministry in the city, uh, in the area of Jerusalem, was to say, hey, you need to turn and you need to repent of your sins because judgment is coming. Things had gotten so harsh the people had stopped, the people who were people of God, they stopped listening to Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, they hated Jeremiah. When Jeremiah would go amongst his crowd, they would look at Jeremiah and they would mock him. Before he would get there, they would say, are you kidding me? Don't you have something good to say? You just need to be quiet. Go tell somebody else because all you do is bring bad news. But the news that he was bringing was news directly from the Lord. And that news was, hey, here's the thing. The truth is you are bringing devastation among your city. You, are, you have become so evil and you've chased worldly things and you've chased worthless idols and you have brought a mockery to the people of God and to the land that was, given, um, that was specifically given to the people of God. And he says, and you have done this. And, and if you continue to sin and you just run headlong into sin like you're doing, your city will be destroyed. Your city will be burned. You yourself will be a mockery. And you yourself, you, you as, as a people group in this area, will be no more. Well, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, this is the event that Jeremiah was talking about. So we're going to start in verse 15 and we're going to read through verse 21. These events happen in approximately 668 B.C. 668 B.C the lord the god of our fathers sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place so the, the god sends a prophet we've talked about this right god sends a prophet he sent jeremiah and he kept bringing this this news hey you need to change you need to change you need to change but, in verse 16, but they mocked God's messengers despite His words and scoffed at his, at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against His people and there was no remedy. They had, had had enough second chances in that moment. They'd had a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and you get the point. And God said, enough is enough. You are going to taste the consequence of your sin. And unfortunately, they did Verse 17, He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword, the sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young men nor young women, old men, or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God. That was their place of worship, both large and small, and all the treasuries of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest in all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years, that's an important thing, until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So there's, there's a transition of power that happens in this text. And when we get to Ezra 1, we're going to already, the, the transition of power has already happened. The Babylonians were cruel. They were tyrants. They would go in and dominate a country. They would strip that country of everything that that made that country unique. They would destroy its temples, its places of worship. They would make them conform and actually turn their language. So whatever the, the original language was, they would destroy that and they would impose upon them the Babylonian language. And if you did not submit to this world power, they would simply kill you. And if you would go into a city and the Babylonians would sweep over an area, all they had to do was kill a few few people and realize, wow, I can just turn and just change languages here and now I have to conform to what they say or else I'm going to die. So the countries would. And the same thing happens to the people in Judah and the city of Jerusalem. As things had gotten so Bad. Things have gotten so out of hand. The Babylonians had dominated the area just like Jeremiah had prophesied that it would happen. But now seventy years had lapsed. And the Babylonians were no longer in power. Now the Persians were. But the Persians had a different they had a whole different way. When they would go into a land that they didn't strip away their language. They would just go in and they would impose upon themselves, but they weren't near as evil as the Babylonians. So the Persians decided the best thing we can do is we're actually going to allow some of of the people of Jerusalem, the exiles, to go back to the original homeland where the Babylonian king forced them to leave. Now you see the Persian king as allowing them to go back home. The the people that I had mentioned Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah they represent three different exile groups. The first one is Zerubbabel, and that group of people it I love the I love this the uh, specific number that it gives in the Word of God, but it, it's in two different places in Ezra Anna, and Nehemiah. There were forty nine thousand six hundred ninety seven people who went back in the first exile group, of which Zerubbabel was the leader of. So now, we, we, we've spanned this 60-year mark, and just so, I want to help you help the Bible make sense. Isaiah, verse 40, I, I, I didn't tell you to go here, but this is going to be on the screen. Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, says this about the same event. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. And that her sin has been paid for and that she has received from the Lord's hand double all her sins. So this is this is a prophetic statement about the events that we're going to read in Ezra 1. One thing, I just just uh, something about the Word of God that is so powerful to me. When you look at, the, when it's translated into our language, in, right in the middle of that, that you see on the screen, it says th- that her hard service has been completed. That is also translated... War or warfare so it's not just hard surf, just a hard service. It was like war for these people. As the city was destroyed, the, the, the places of worship destroyed, the gates destroyed and burned, their homes destroyed. So when the people of God go back to Jerusalem, they have no idea what they're getting into. There was a whole different group of people living there. Do you think they would have been fearful? Absolutely. So they're going back to their original homeland with no idea how much work it's going to take. Are the people going to receive me? Is there somebody living in my old house? They have no idea at this point. So Ezra 1. says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Ezra 1 is is probably the next page as to what you were probably reading. Just so you, you have that. Ezra 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and we can actually trace this back through through other documents other than the Bible. So if you're not necessarily a Bible person or you're just trying to come come to the faith and help make sense of things. Uh, even things through archaeology and things through history help the Bible make sense. The Bible isn't just a standalone document. There are a lot of other things outside of the Bible that help make the Bible make sense, and this is one of them. Uh, the, the Lord, or excuse me, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Anyone of his people among you, may his his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build a temple Uh, and build a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, this is verse 7, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in his temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought uh, by Midrath, the treasurer, who counted them to Shezbazar, which I'll tell you why that's important, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Look at the detail in the Word of God. This is the inventory. The gold dishes, there were 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were... 5,400 articles of gold and silver, Shezbazar brought all these along with the when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now you may be confused because I said the name Zerubbabel and yet the word of God just uses the, the word Shezbazar. Shezbazar was actually the name because I told you that when the Babylonians would come in and dominate people, they would also give them new names. So it would strip their very identity. So, the Babylonian name, which is being, it's what he's being called right here, is Shezbazar. But his original name is Zerubbabel, and that name means born in Babylon. So Zerubbabel had never even gone to his, 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 the nation of Israel, to that homeland. He had never gone. He never knew what it was like. Most likely, he'd never seen it. He'd only heard stories from other people. He'd probably heard the devastation from other people. And 70 years had lapsed between the destruction and now when the first group of exiles go back. And in their, in their time, Zerubbabel knew that we have to start something. And there were 49,697 other people who had a dream that God was going to start something and somehow, some way, God was going to use them in the process. So they go back to restart. Go back to rebuild. They go back to to maybe starting building the the altar of worship and a place uh, in just the overall place of worship the temple. To go back to start putting their homes together. Go back to put up their walls so they can actually live with some protection from their surrounding enemies. But it all had to start somewhere and it started with their Babel. There's going to be four main takeaways this morning and The first takeaway is in all that we do and whatever it is that that you, that that God wants you to start, that you're supposed to do, the conversation you're supposed to have, maybe it's just you're supposed to go talk to a financial planner because you're way over your head in, in credit card debt and you have no idea how to get back, but whatever it is that God wants you to do, you have to realize that there are some predictable prisons, predictable prisons. The prison that these people in Jerusalem were in. It was absolutely predicted by Jeremiah. He said, hey, if you don't get this right, if you don't repent of your sin, you are going to be dominated. Everything that you know is going to be stripped away. Your country, your people, your homes, your place of worship, the altar that you worship on. Everything will be desecrated. Everything will be destroyed. And it was. And that was a predictable prison, but the reason why all of those events happened is because they had sin that was unaccounted for in their lives. And I have to let you know, just this is the same way that, that they would find out, Any time that we walk and, and we just we live in unrepentant sin, we are in a prison ourselves. I believe this is what, uh, what Jesus was referring to in John chapter eight in verse 34. He says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins or everyone who continues to sin, who's unrepentant of their sin, they just keep walking in sin after sin after sin. He says, Jesus' words, he says, is a slave to sin. That you, in essence, are are imprisoned to your own sin. That's a strong statement from our Lord and Savior. He says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son, and I would mind you, a daughter, belongs to it forever. So if the Son, the Son of God, it's capitalized for a reason, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, if He sets you free, you will be free indeed. The only way that you can have victory over your sin, your stumbling block, your iniquity, the thing that, that brings you the most shame in your life, the only way that you can have victory over any of these other things... Is for you, maybe for the very first time, to go before Almighty God and just have some time of open confession and just tell him he knows you're a sinner, but it means so much more when we go before him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm so in need of your grace. And and what we see and the, the beauty of this text is Jesus tells us if you are living in sin and you're just continuing in a lifestyle of sin and you know it's the wrong thing to do, but you continue to do it, you are actually a slave to that sin. And in some ways you can control your own destiny with that sin because Jesus says, who the sun sets free, you'll be free indeed. So if we go to the throne of His grace and we, we pray and we acknowledge and we confess and we repent of that sin we, and we confess that He is faithful and just and He will forgive us that sin. And that's the grace of God. That's the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that can satisfy the needs of our Lord. These people in, in this situation, they were so into their sin and they had so given way to their sin and they were in prison to their sin, and they didn't even know it. And they lived 70 years, a lifetime, a generation or two, away from God. And they were given many opportunities to turn their life around. Maybe for you, you just need to take that step and say, you know what, I'm an." I am in I'm in bondage, I'm in prison, I'm enslaved to my sin. And maybe you just need to go before God and just say, God, enough's enough. I'm sick of running away. I just want to run headlong into you. And I just want your I just want j- just your grace and your mercy to just cover me and just to, just to engulf every part of you. But we have to understand that that we we can live in a predictable that we we may live in a predictable Prison, and yet we have to push through. John Eldredge said it this way in a book that, that really has changed my life. He says this: a man's calling. Now, this book was written to men, but women, uh, ladies, this this also, I believe, speaks right into you as well. A man's calling or a woman's calling is written on on their true heart, and he discovers it or she discovers it when when they enter the frontier of their deep desires. There's a lot there, so let me help you unpack that. I believe what, what John Eldredge is saying is, every one of us is called to do something. Some of us, we've already started to kind of live out that calling, and we've already started to make some strides to, to, to doing what it is that God wants us to do. And there's some of us who, are, who have not, we don't even know where the starting line is. And, and there's this, this barrier between you and what you're supposed to do, and it's fear and worry and doubt and anxiety and sin. And there's this this barrier that's that's stopping you. And what Eldritch is saying here is that, that a person's calling is written on their true heart. So we have to go back to see what it is that, that our true heart is, the, the true heart that God has given us. To go all the way back to go through the, hard, to, through the hardship, through the pain, through the suffering, and go to our true heart. Allow God to do some, some heart work on us. And that when we go back to that, we will find those deep desires. And, and I think what he's saying here, and the reason why I'm even giving this quote, is I believe if we kind of go through... And I realize this is going to take more than a message. It's going to take weeks. It may, this may be the first of many things speaking into this. But I believe that every one of us could have a breakthrough in this area. You can know what it is that God has called you to do. And, and I will assure you it's greater than what you're currently doing. But yet we have to, we have to push through. And we have to enter the frontier of our deep desires. But it's difficult, and sometimes it's painful. Sometimes you enter the place of the unknown. Zerubbabel, he, he would go back, and it was a place of the unknown. He, he probably had never even gone to this area. He didn't know these people. Other people, enemy people, had occupied the land. And now he was the one who was supposed to be leading approximately 50,000 people back, and they would be looking for him for, for leadership and guidance. And he had never gone there. How in the world could he do it? Unless the Lord led him to do it, which is the calling, a divine calling, but he had to break through that predictable prison, acknowledge this that the pain of staying the same is it, it, the pain of staying the same is harder than the pain of changing it is it is I'm just telling you we we try and convince ourselves otherwise, and there's other things that 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 I believe Satan puts as barriers for us. But, but just acknowledge this that, that the, pain, uh, the pain of changing is actually easier than the pain of staying the same. So, why don't we see significant change? Why don't we chase those dreams? Why, why do we settle for dysfunction? Why do we do that? Just have some fears. We're going to be touching on these through this series, but I'm just going to kind of wash these over. And if one of these sticks, here's what I want you to do. If, if one of these things that's spoken to you, and you're like, wow, that's my story, then I want you to write it down in your worship guide. And I want you to pray about that fear. And I believe if you go back to the throne of His grace, and you pour your heart out to Him, He will give you victory over that fear. As you will see next week, that fear is actually not of the Lord. And that fear has been something that's been created in you. But here are some fears and these are the what ifs. What if I fail? What if I what if I start something and it turns out to be an absolute failure? What if I fail? What if, what if I go in and what if, yeah, my, my marriage is on the rocks and I'm going through difficult times. What if we're too far gone and now I go see a counselor and I put all this money out and I, I just open my heart up to, this, to my spouse or this, this other person and then all of a sudden it's just like they just kick dirt on me and they don't even care about me anymore. What happens if I put myself out there and I'm so vulnerable? What happens then? What happens if, if I get involved in this thing and I commit my life to something and I'm under-resourced? What if I, I, I'm not smart enough? Like I don't know enough about the Bible to do this. I, how in the world could I ever adopt a child when, when I don't even know how to really be the best parent for the ones that I have? How, how could I possibly go out and be f- financially free of, of debt when I'm so buried in credit cards? I'm, I'm 15 grand deep in credit cards. How in the world can I get out? That's a fear. That's a fear-based response. And that is a predictable prison. Maybe it's a lack of education. I'm just not smart enough. I, just, I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't have the right education. How can I, how can I actually go about and work my dream job? How can I, how can I step into that, the, 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 through the frontier of that desire, when, when everybody else says I have to have an education, and I didn't like school when I was in, and I'm not volunteering to go back. So what do I do now? Now I feel like I, I'm overwhelmed, and now I have a fear of a lack of education. Maybe it's a lack of experience and you're saying, you know what, I'm burdened for something, but I just, things in my life, they haven't just, I I don't know if I've been shaped enough, I don't know know enough, I haven't had enough experiences to to actually do what it is that God is calling me to do. Maybe it's just the what if. of Maybe you get in this thing and you say, man, I think I made the wrong decision. Maybe, Maybe I just made the wrong decision. What do I do now? Will I look like a fool? What am I going to say to my spouse when I go to them and I say, hey, we need to go on a missions trip and we need to set up a plan. We need to budget for a missions trip over the next two years. And I know we're we're hurting financially, but I believe this would be better for our marriages, this would be better for our kids, and it would be better for just the, the work of God overall. And yet, what if you were to go to your spouse and just totally out of the blue and say, you know what, we need to go on a missions trip. I know you can give a thousand reasons why you, you can't go or why you don't think you can go, why you're not smart enough, why you don't have some, some value to add somewhere else. But what if, what if you get involved in that and you just say, I need, think we need to go on a mission trip. And now all of a sudden you get deep into it and you start having doubts and you say, did I make the right decision? What did I do? I put, I put all my eggs in this basket. What, 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 what if I made the wrong decision? What if you what if you start something and you have to start over again? And you have to start over again. What if you get into it and what if you push past some fear and yet you get all the way into it and you you start feeling rejected from your friends? What if you finally 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 listen to me church? What if you finally take those steps toward Jesus and okay, you're a Christian, you've been you've been kind of talking the talk but now you need to walk the walk and now what happens if you get in your workplace and you decide you know what i'm actually going to pray before my meals at lunch i don't care who's sitting with me i don't care if my boss is sitting with me i don't care if my best friend is sitting with me i don't care if i'm sitting alone but you would sit there in front and in at your place of employment to say i'm going to be bold for jesus in this way and i'm going to pray and i don't care who else is there what happens if they reject you what happens See, all of these things are, are fears that hold us back. But I have to tell you, maybe not all of these, but many of these I do understand. When we were in Florida, we'd been there for five years. We had, we had started out, and basically it was a ministry. Uh, I led a couple ministries, and, and Marla, basically she worked at uh, the preschool that was attached to the church. And, and all of it was in, disres- it was in disrepair. And the first couple years were some of the most difficult years of my life. They really were. And it left me scratching my head. Why in the world, Lord, did you bring us to this place? I am spent. And the consequences of that also fed into the story that I opened this talk up with. And yet, when we got to about year two to three... And then three to four, things start to settle down. Things started to get started to get a little bit more comfortable. started to get a little bit more momentum. The ministry was kind of going. The preschool was going. The school was going. It's like we started to see some changes. Started to see some victories. The vision's coming alive. People are getting it. We got comfortable. Then God does this thing, and he says, Hey, I want you to go pastor a church. But, Lord, don't you know that we're comfortable where we are? I'm like, we're in Florida, and we got all these friends. We still have these friends, and everything's great. And what if they reject me? I'm like... What is this thing about the nat line, Lord? I don't even understand the nat line. And now you want us to go to Dublin, Georgia? Where is that? Marlo thought it was Dublin, Ireland, and she got mad at me when, she, when I said, hey, uh, Dublin called, and she's like, you applied to Ireland? I'm like, no, babe. Don't you want to go to Ireland anyway, though? So anyway, so then, and then, you know, we're, we kind of do some research, and I do hear about the nat line, and I'm like, what in the world's a nat line? I'm like, what is that? And then they said, no, no, are you above the nat line or below the nat line? And I found out I was below, and I knew I was in trouble. Like, I'd never even heard about that. It was like some anomaly in middle Georgia. It's like you're from middle Georgia if, like, you know what the Nat Line is, right? So the only thing I knew about this place was I knew of the Nat Line and the Redneck Games. And neither one of them sounded really good <laughs> or inviting at that moment. Um, just saying. Maybe you're into that thing. I just, I just, I'm not. So, um... So I never heard about that. We were comfortable where we were. We were entering into a place into a group of people that we didn't know. And at that time, to even make matters a little bit more difficult, imagine this church, but only on this side. Because that's how many people were here four years ago. And then looking at that, and there were some people in this church, and they believed that God wasn't done with this church. But we were starting to form relationships but we had many fears. We had, we had some, 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 some barriers, some boundaries in our faith. But one thing that we found was God was with us in Florida and God's with us here in Georgia. And we had to come to this place to start something new also. And praise God that we did. Praise God that he, 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 he made Dublin Bible Church way before I got here. Praise God that there were people in here who, who saw that this church needed, uh, needed something else than what they were already doing. Although we had a lot of questions, God, I I don't feel like coming into this place and everybody else seemed like have a a higher education than me and yet I'm like one of the youngest people coming in here and I was fearful, they were loving but yet I was fearful because I'm sitting back, I'm thinking, wow, yeah, I've got a master's degree but I've got doctorates and I've got higher education in this and higher education in this and and upper management of this and used to be a plant manager in this and what in the world, what am I going to say? They appeared to have everything else, everything else together. What could I say? I felt like I was about this big. Not because they made me feel that way. Because I put myself in that situation. I imposed fear upon myself. But I knew that God wasn't done with this church. And I knew that he was going to bring us to this place to start something. And praise God, he did. As the church has, has multiplied. Not added, multiplied over this time. And that's just what God has done. So I understand the, the, the fear of failure. What if we go here and this stuff doesn't work? What if, what if, what if my plan doesn't work? What, what if we get in here and the people don't like us? What if I, we, build a, we, not, we, build, we buy a house and everything's great and this doesn't work out and we have to close the doors on this and the church gets smaller and smaller and smaller and we have to sell the property? What do I do then? Do I wash cars? Do I sell cars? What do I do? I understand the lack of resources, the lack of education, the lack of experience, wondering if they made the right decision of starting over because we had relationships that had to be started here. I get this. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, there is nothing better than surrendering yourself to God's will and trusting that His plan is better than your plan but you have to start somewhere and you have to do something. Many times the predictable or the prisons that we live in are so predictable and they they hold us back in ways that we don't even know. The second thing is this. Understand that, that all of these things that we go through... And this is taken from verse 3. It says, May his God be with him, and which is another way of saying, God, be with you. And I would just say, we have a relational assurance. Whatever it is that you're supposed to go do, and you're supposed to start, if you're walking with Jesus, know that he walks with you. That he walks with you. You can have a relational assurance that he's with you. And as we have just declared that song, God is able, he is able to do more in you than what you could even fathom yourself. And uh, I love... Um, Martin Luther, who he was mentioned on the video, Martin Luther, he said that the sweetness of the gospel is in its personal pronouns. The sweetness of the gospel is found in its personal pronouns. And this is an example in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, that being Jesus Christ, who loved me. Back up one. Back up. Nope. Galatians 2.20. You got just a little bit ahead of me. There you go, right there. Who loved me and he gave himself for me. Just look at all the personal pronouns in, in that text. He's talking to you. This isn't just some cold passage over a period of time that was just written a couple thousand years ago and it pertained to them and it doesn't pertain to us. This sweetness, I believe what Martin Luther says here, the sweetness of the gospel is found in its personal pronouns. That I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. Then also we, we jump ahead. Second Corinthians 9.8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. That means if God has put you to do something, He will bring you through it. There's nothing that that if God inspires you, God will see that thing through. Whatever it is that you're supposed to start, He is the one who's going to finish. That's what this is saying. And that, that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things and at all times, having all you need. That means there's no way that you're going to be under-resourced. That's one of God's promises. If God puts you to do a task, He's going to resource it. So that means that your fear of the lack of resources is only in your head. It's not of the Lord. Your, your fear of, what if I don't have enough experience? What if I make the wrong decision? What if I have to start over again? What if I fail? If we have the, if we have the faith to take that step forward... Failure is not an option because we're walking by faith. Maybe that step is all you have to do and just trust God to do the rest. So we have relational assurance. Let me ask you this. What God-given dream would you chase if you knew the only way to fail is to never start? What God-given dream would you chase if you knew the only way to fail is to never start? What would that be for you? If you knew that it was impossible to fail, what is it that you would start? Two other things. And then we're going to be in the home stretch. So we see predictable prisons. We see the relational assurance. And third, we're going to see a divine resourcing. Look how God, and you see this specifically in verse 3 as well. You look how all of the supplies for the temple and all of the things needed for worship, they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from the people. They're coming from a pagan king. The the other pagan king had stolen them and taken them out of the place of, of the temple of worship. Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king, the king of Babylon. Now you see the Persian king is giving them all back. That's divine resourcing. He says, hey, God has given you this dream. I want you to go back babel, and I want you to, to reinstate worship in this place. I want you to build an altar in this place. I want a temple to be built in this place. I want you to live in this place. I want you to have children in this place. I want you to prosper in this place. I want you to build walls in this place. And when you do it, know that I am the divine resourcer. As a matter of fact, the thing that you're supposed to start and the thing that God is, is preempting you to start, He is going to resource. It's not just up to you. Because ultimately this is going to be a newsflash, it's not even about you. It's not even about us. If God puts you to do something, He has more invested in what He wants you to do than you do. Divine resourcing. Breaking free from the Predictable prisons. Understand that we have the assurance, the relational assurance that God walks with us. Pushing past the, the some of the boundaries of fear. And now we have this divine resourcing that God will, he will enable you to do exactly what it is that you're supposed to do. And whatever God brings you to do, He will bring you through. Whatever it is that God brings you to do, He will bring you through. The idea of divine resourcing. And know this. There's a divine positioning. God had sent this plan... For over 70 years, that this event that we're going to be studying over the next 11 weeks, that this was going to happen, that God had some divine positioning. I believe God has like a divine positioning system. And I believe you are probably in the very place that God wants you to, to use you, that you are in a divine position right now, right in what you're doing, for you to go out and do whatever it is that God wants you to do. And that's what we see with these people, that God is divinely positioning them To do what it is that they're supposed to do. And he promised it for over 70 years. Martin Luther King Jr. says this. He says, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. I love that. Taking the first step even when you don't see the staircase. What is it that you're supposed to start? What is God wanting to do in you and then through you? Whatever that is, my hope, and I, I realize that you, you may have the answer right now, but more than likely you don't. My hope is that through the next ten weeks after this one, that God will move you closer and closer and closer, and that the, one day you will do what I did, where you will stand on your line, and that when, when, when God says to get on your mark, you will be ready to do and to chase and to dream and, and to go and to serve and to give and do everything that he wants you to do. But we have to break free. Of those predictable prisons.